The Hamlet Podcast, episode 92. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. Last time, we had a look at the first half of the Player King's speech, which is his answer to the Queen's promise that she could never remarry. The King has already explained, gently and quite ruefully, that fate has a way of getting in the way of the promises we make. With the best will in the world, what we do determine oft we break. His speech concludes with an equally cautious tone. The great man down, you mark, his favourite flies. The poor advanced makes friends of enemies. And hitherto doth love on fortune tend. For who not needs shall never lack a friend. And who in want a hollow friend doth try, Directly seasons him his enemy. But, orderly to end where I begun, Our wills and fates do so contrary run, That our devices still are overthrown. Our thoughts are ours, their ends none of our own. So think thou wilt no second husband wed, But die thy thoughts when thy first lord is dead. Within this play within a play, Designed as a trap to shock Claudius into revealing his guilt, Shakespeare still manages to present us with some very human truths. This king, perhaps designed to echo the goodness of Hamlet's father, is philosophical enough to know that life has a way of messing with our plans and promises. As Shakespeare wrote around the same time, there is a tide in the affairs of men. The player king points out just how fickle fortune can be. The great man down, you mark, his favourite flies. The poor advanced makes friends of enemies. When a great man, rich or successful or powerful, suffers a fall, his friends will likely desert him. And by contrast, when a poor man is advanced or climbs in status, very often he becomes friends with former enemies. Shakespeare is eager to point out the shallowness of those who follow the money. And hitherto doth love on fortune tend, for who not needs shall never lack a friend, and who in want a hollow friend doth try, directly seasons him his enemy. A lot of love, he's saying, depends on luck or fortune. Whoever is financially secure, who not needs, shall never lack a friend. People who are doing quite well will always be surrounded by the quote-unquote love of those trying to be their friends. By contrast, however, someone in want, or in need, who tries a hollow friend for a bit of support, or even just cash, will directly season him his enemy. When you're flushed, you'll never lack company, but when you're down, asking the wrong friend for help will convert friend to foe. A friend in need really is a friend indeed. The king is really rather maudlin here in his lack of faith, but then bear in mind the story being set up is that this king was trusting but not stupid. He rounds out his speech with a return to his wife's promises. But, orderly to end where I begun, our wills and fates do so contrary run that our devices still are overthrown. He's really trying to remind his wife that what we hope for and what actually happens so contrary run that our plans and ideas, or devices, are overthrown. We can own our own thoughts, but what happens in the end is beyond our control. Our thoughts are ours, their ends none of our own. So think thou wilt no second husband wed, 
but die thy thoughts when thy first lord is dead. It's all very well for her to think she won't take another husband, but, he says, such thoughts will die when he does. There's even a chance that the king's last line here is a command, that he's actually telling such thoughts to die when he, the first lord, passes away. I've mentioned earlier that it's dramatically exciting to see this performance playing out in front of Gertrude and Claudius, since the circumstances so touch what happened before the Shakespeare play began. How Gertrude might react to all of this is intriguing. She, a widow recently remarried, having to watch a queen promising that she'd never dream of taking a new husband. It's also worth noting that the king here is more or less giving his queen his blessing. He doesn't encourage her outright, but he is saying that realistically, he is sick and she is very likely to take a new husband when he dies. The ghost, all the way back in Act 1, was rather angry about what happened between his wife and his brother, although he's quite specific in his instruction to Hamlet to leave her to heaven, to leave Gertrude alone. Whatever revenge Hamlet may plan, it shouldn't include that queen. The player king is far more forgiving to his queen than the real king we've seen earlier. The player queen now matches her king's speech, with eight lines that sum up her own point. Nor earth to me give food, nor heaven light. Sport and repose lock from me day and night. To desperation turn my trust and hope, and anchor's cheer in prison be my scope. Each opposite that blanks the face of joy meet what I would have well, and it destroy. Both here and hence pursue me lasting strife, if once a widow ever I be wife. The player queen is laying it on pretty thick here, not least in anticipation of one of Gertrude's most famous lines, which we will hear next week. She hopes that the earth will give her no food, that heaven will give her no light or sunshine, sport or entertainment and repose or rest will be forbidden to her, day and night. She imagines that her trust and hope will turn to desperation, and then makes what has become a very obscure reference. She hopes that an anchor's cheer in prison be my scope. This anchor is not to do with a ship, but refers instead to an anchorite, from the ancient Greek for having withdrawn from the world. An anchorite, or an anchoress in the female version, was a kind of religious hermit that withdrew entirely from ordinary life, very often locked up in a cell. The player queen's dramatic image is that the only joy or cheer that should be available to her would be the equivalent of whatever an anchorite might enjoy in her prison, and no more. And she goes even further. The next couplet is even more tortuous. Remember, Shakespeare is still showing off his ability to write inelegant rhyming lines for this artificial play. Each opposite that blanks the face of joy meet what I would have well and it destroy. Her point is that whatever opposite or opposing force that can ruin happiness or blank the face of joy, let that opposing force meet whatever she wants in the world and destroy it. Let every desire she might have in her heart be destroyed, she says. And she's still not done. Her speech concludes with one more rhyming couplet. Both here and hence pursue me lasting strife, if once a widow ever I be wife. Now and forever let her be plagued with misery or strife. All the preceding images and proclamations are conditional. Let all of these terrible things befall me, she's crying, 
if she marries again and becomes a wife after she has become a widow. Pulling these tightly woven phrases and images apart seems to require at least double the number of words in explanation. Even when Shakespeare is writing seemingly bad verse, he's still a master of precision and economy. This whole performance is anything but subtle, and Hamlet is on the edge of his seat with excitement, trying to watch the court's reaction to it. He speaks next, and has quite a good deal of commentary on the play, even giving it its title, before the next character appears. But we'll save his contributions for the next episode. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.